0: Trauma Talk. This program encourages you to do a mental assessment of any trauma you have experienced and help you become proactive in your own personal healing and thereby create a better world for you and your loved ones to live and thrive in. Now, here is the host of Trauma Talk, Ezrina Rose Scott.
1: Good morning, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Trauma Talk. Joining me today is the amazing Dr. Frank Gerbodi. He is a philosopher by nature and a psychiatrist by occupation. He is the creator of Applied Metapsychology, which includes TIR. TIR stands for Traumatic Incident Reduction. It's a very efficient and effective method for helping heal trauma. So welcome, Dr. Gerbodi. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. Awesome. So, I just want to share uh, several years ago when I first met you, it was at a TIR symposium in Buffalo, New York. And after the symposium, if you recall, we popped over to Niagara Falls and uh, checked out the sites and we went there for dinner. And while I was standing in the souvenir shop, you had approached me and asked me to uh, keep an eye on you as you had to go to the washroom. And do you remember this by any chance? Yes, I do. Okay. So <laughs> I felt so bad because you asked me to keep an eye on you because you tend to get lost, you said. So I waited and I waited. And as time went by, uh, you you didn't come out of the washroom. I don't know where you were. And I calculated the distance between the men's washroom and the exit. And I, I just couldn't find you anywhere. So I walked uh, on the path along Niagara Falls to the restaurant. I still didn't see you. I get to the restaurant and you're not there. I absolutely panicked. <laughs> so I think I needed TIR, Sarge.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I uh, it was a new space for me, so I didn't quite know where I was. And uh, I guess we must have found each other at some point.
1: Well, we did. It just baffles me to this day how I lost you. Um, yeah. But it was, it was, I was so glad when you showed up. So, so glad. And thank you. I'm very glad. I thought maybe I had had gone
2: over the falls or something.
1: (laughs) 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 A lot of things went through my imagination. I had no idea how I lost you. But, anyways, what a first impression I made, hey? Yeah.
2: No, you made a great impression.
1: Oh, thank you. So, I'm really curious and I'd like you to share uh, with the audience. You have a very interesting. mix. You have training in philosophy and psychiatry. So tell us a little bit about how you come to study both of those and what your perspective is on human nature, please.
2: Well, I, I, I got into philosophy because I took a philosophy course, sort of intro to philosophy 101. And the guy who taught it was, he looked like, he looked apart. He had this floating white hair and and abstracted manner. And he was just a perfect, uh, the perfect philosopher. And I really loved it. I loved his course and that got me onto philosophy. And then uh, I uh, carried on from there to make a sort of a specialty in the area of ethics, which I viewed as the uh, part of philosophy that helps you make decisions, good decisions. Mm. And, and um, I, partly because I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, and I figured if I based it on good ethical principles, then I'd probably live a good life. Anyway, so then I, I find that I went to Cambridge to study more philosophy after I graduated. Uh, and uh, but I found that what I was learning in uh, philosophy was not particularly uh, germane to the to the topic of living the good life. I, I was learning about the language of bees and uh, Wittgenstein was a big thing in Cambridge at that point and he was he didn't really believe in traditional philosophy so I decided I was going in the wrong direction and because of my interest in in ethics I figured for philosophical reasons I decided that in order to have a good uh, understanding of ethics, you had to understand human nature and human motivation. So I decided I had to learn about that. And my father was a doctor. So I thought, OK, I'll go into psychiatry because psychiatrists certainly must know about this kind of thing, human nature.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, so I went to uh, Yale Medical School. I became a psychiatrist. But at the end of the day, once I finished my training and my residency and everything else, I realized I really didn't have much of a clue what to do with my clients or patients. And so then I had to do more study and I kept looking into different things and finally met a group of people that had uh, similar interests and together we put together the metapsychology material applied metapsychology, you know, which was an application of philosophical principles, to something that would be actually quite practical in in helping people to get over their difficulties, including trauma.
1: Okay. And describe describe trauma.
2: Well, trauma is not entirely something that happens to a person. It's a relationship between something that happens in the person's life and that person's reaction to it. So a trauma is something that happens that's very difficult to confront, that's, that is experienced as painful. And for some people, being in combat is traumatic, having to shoot people, being scared of being shot, et etc. et cetera. And for other people, that might be very exciting and not particularly traumatic. And then for somebody like me, who is very shy, going to a party might be traumatic to a degree. Like, uh, oh gosh, what shall I say? Uh, not not the same degree, but people experience different things as trauma. So it's very specific to the person involved.
1: And would you say that it is a sense of overwhelm on the person's... Um I guess, senses and the way they perceive it.
2: Yeah, it's it's the fact. Well, that's the other side of the coin to saying that a person can't confront it. It's too much or it's it's something that they can't really process uh, in their own universe. So it becomes something that they can't really fully allow themselves to be aware of because it's too painful. And the... uh, only alternative is to repress it. And Freud was quite right in talking about repression. That is a phenomenon. And ultimately, that's the uh, the cause of the difficulties people have because their effort to not be aware of something that they're aware of, it paradoxically keeps that thing very close at hand because they have to make sure it's close by so they know where not to look. and. Uh, so the, I'm sorry. Were you going to say something?
1: Oh no, I just said interesting. Oh it yeah. Not being aware of something that you you are. Okay, continue. Yeah.
2: It's you, you, you it's a real ability that people have, which is amazing, to deliberately not be aware of something that they are aware of, uh, and just keeping it really close and in a little pocket, so they don't have to look at it. Like you know the the classic thing of not thinking about a pink elephant. Mm-hmm. What happens when you try not to think about a pink elephant? Then you get pink elephants surrounding you. And uh, it it uh, it actually requires a lot of effort. And it, it saps a person's energy to be doing this to a lot of different past incidents. And all this energy is turned to destructive uh, and unpleasant uh, phenomena such as Emotion, unwanted emotions, feelings, unwanted feelings, compulsions, obsessions, and destructive behavior of one kind or another, all caused by this pent-up energy. So, so what we're concerned with in uh, traumatic incident reduction is r- recovering the awareness of the past trauma and. Um, when you do that, you never no longer have to spend all that energy holding it back, as it were, uh, nor do you suffer the ill effects from it, but you are just released from all that and you have a resurgence of energy which can be used for positive growth.
1: So would you say the act of repressing is an automatic psychological mechanism or are we choosing this in a nanosecond?
2: I think it's semi-automatic if you will uh it's uh it's a habit so if uh and some people have that habit to more degrees than others some people have a tendency to turn toward experience and those experience those people will experience less trauma but other people are have a habit of flinching away and those people will experience more trauma and more effective traumas, but ultimately there is a decision. But it may happen, as you say, in a nanoseconds, uh, and it's it's the basic decision that we all have as human beings, whether to confront something or not, and whether to be aware or not. And I'm a big awareness buff because when you are aware of things. For one thing, you get the benefit of being aware, the knowledge. And for another thing, you don't have these pockets of repression hanging around that are causing you trouble.
1: Right. And w- the more aware we are, the more energy we have available to create our lives. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So tell us uh, about TIR, Traumatic Incident Reduction.
2: Well, as, as you might guess from what I've said, it's an awareness technique Mm -hmm. and a past incident is kind of like a film strip or a video segment i guess these days is what we'd call it and uh from the past which has been repressed but it still exists as a memory it's just a memory that you're not letting yourself look at so tir provides a safe and uh sort of step-by-step uh, way of becoming aware of these past video segments, if you will, by uh, by addressing them and having the person go through them like a video uh, from the beginning to the end and doing so more than once. So they would uh, go through it once and then they get a chance to talk about what happened to uh, narrate what happened and then go through it again, narrate it again, go through it again, narrate it again. And by the time a person has gone through it several times, they become aware of stuff they didn't, uh, they weren't aware of the first time. And it's just like when you see a, a really good movie, mm-hmm. you, uh, the first time through the movie, you'll notice a lot of things. But the second time, if you watch it again, you'll see stuff that you weren't aware of the first time. And if so you watch it-
1: It's like each time you view it, some of the suppressed details are coming up into your conscious awareness, which enables you to confront those pieces. So the more you review it, the more you resolve it.
2: Right, exactly. And at a certain point, uh, you have resolved everything that you needed to resolve, everything that you weren't trying, that you were trying to repress, but now you don't need to. And at that point, you experience a resurgence of energy, which is quite noticeable in a session. And uh, that's what we call an endpoint. That's when person has resolved it. And then the most important thing to do at that point is to stop, not not rehash it. What was uh, said, not uh, go over it again. Uh, just to say, good, we're done with that, and. It, and it's very uh, empowering to a person to to uh, acknowledge when they finish something
1: so i have an example um Years ago, I facilitated this gentleman and her sister, his sister was murdered and he had quite a lot of difficulty confronting that fact. So that's a piece that he was unwilling to be fully aware of is that she was murdered and to accept that. So when I was facilitating TIR with him, the first viewing took 20 minutes and then each subsequent viewing thereafter became shorter and shorter. And during his, his uh, process, his head was down, his eyes were closed, and at the end, this is what you call an endpoint. all of a sudden, his head popped up, his eyes opened, he looked at me, and he said, oh, I just have to accept that she died, and she isn't coming back. I have to move on with my life.
2: Yeah, it's pretty classic Yeah, endpoint because a person not only feels a resurgence of energy and extroverts from the past into the present but also they characteristically have some point of insight the kind of insight that uh psychoanalysts are are delighted with when they occur and the the kind of insight that as a therapist before I started doing this kind of work I tried to provide for my clients in other words um I would try to uh, think about w- what the situation was, and then tell the client what the the insight that I had had about their case. And that actually turned out to be uh, a quite presumptuous of me, and b disempowering to the client who sh- who needed to find their own insight. So the good thing about the TIR technique is it enables the person to discover, uh, learn about themselves for themselves and everything that they learn, it's their doing and they can take pride in that and, and enjoy the power of being able to do that.
1: Mm-hmm. So if we were to give our insight to the client before they've actually resolved it, the, the energy that's holding that repressed information, they don't actually sustain the change or the endpoint because if we give them the insight, they haven't actually resolved it. So, to speak a little bit ab- about that, about the power of them getting to the insight. We just have a, a few more seconds here before break.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, the, uh, nobody else can see something for another person, I can't see something for you. So no matter how hard I try to see something for you, it's not going to be the same as you're seeing it for yourself. And that's, that's why this technique works so effectively. And anything you try to say by way of seeing something for me only gets in the way. If, I, if, if um, you wanted me to look at a car and then you started telling me all about the car without actually giving me an opportunity to look at it, I would not get the same view of the car as I would by looking for myself. So it's just a different experiential level.
1: Okay, so it's far more effective to let the person get to their personal insight rather than us Trying basically. to be really just smart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, so Dr. Grabote, we're going to take a short break and okay. we'll be back soon.
2: All right, I'll be here.
0: Okay.
1: We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment.
0: Visit ezrena.ca for information about counseling and body healing services. Esrina is a Master's Therapeutic Counselor registered with the Association of Cooperative Counseling Therapists of Canada. She has 10 years of counseling experience. She will work both in her office as well as via Skype or will travel to your area through her workshops. You can even schedule a session online. These sessions are one hour or 90 minutes long. Visit Esrina.ca Again, that's ezrena.ca. Ca. Ezrina Rose Scott conducts several workshops every year, and she can bring them to you wherever you are. Visit Ezrina.ca or call 250-212-5596 for more information. Ezrina is an Access Consciousness Practitioner. Her popular workshops include Access Consciousness, The Bars, as well as workshops on Money, Body, and Relationships. Ezrena's workshops can help you get unstuck and move forward in your life. Find out more or bring a friend along. Visit ezrena.ca for more information or call 250-212-5596. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Trauma Talk with Esrena Rose Scott. To reach our program today, you may call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's one 888 346 346-9141. If you'd rather send an email, you can send it to Ezrina at ezrina.ca. Now, let's return to Trauma Talk.
1: So, Dr. Graboti, uh, some people would say that reviewing a traumatic incident several times in and of itself would be re-traumatizing. And what I have found with my clients is, at first, sometimes they're extremely nervous of uh, confronting a trauma or traumatic incident. However, they very quickly come down or they discharge uh, the emotions and the energy that's attached to that traumatic incident, and they get to a place where it becomes neutral, not re-traumatizing. What what do you say to this?
2: No, that's right. Uh, There's two aspects to it. One is selecting the thing you're gonna work on. How do you select the trauma that you think is actually accessible that won't be overwhelming to a person? Because the person may have many traumas. And so you wanna select one that is close to awareness and isn't too overwhelming for the person. And the way you do that is by asking them if you have identified trauma, you ask a person if they feel interested in looking at it. If it actually emotionally uh, arouses their interest, that is an indicator that it'll be something that won't be too too much for them to handle. And the other part of it is that once you've selected an incident, you don't shove the person's nose in it. They can see any part of it that they want to, they don't have to, uh, you're not encouraging them to look at it more closely than, than they need to. So they'll, the first time through, they may see it very superficially, very uh, cognitively rather than emotionally. And then as they feel more comfortable with the incident, they will gradually include more emotion. And usually what happens is it reaches kind of a peak where their experience is the maximum emotion. And then as they go through it, after that peak, the amount of motion reduces until finally at the end, at the end point, there is no more negative emotion associated with it. And that is the point of resolution we're going for. But it's it's very gentle. And I say it's, it's sort of client titrated in the sense that a person will take whatever concentration of stuff that they feel comfortable with and work with that and then they get more brave if you will uh, as as it goes goes on
1: mm-hmm. so it's not re-traumatizing it's actually releasing
2: it's releasing and because you're not forcing anything it's force that causes trauma if you're acting from the person's interest and they're actually interested and involved in doing the work on this particular trauma, then it's not going to be traumatizing to them because they are being causative towards this trauma rather than being the effect of it. And that turns the whole thing around to a point where it's not traumatic anymore.
1: So basically, you're giving them a choice in choosing which item to address, and that in and of itself is very empowering for them. Yes. Okay.
2: And then you're going through it in a gradual way, allowing them to determine how much of it they want to look at during each time through. Sometimes it's very superficial. And then as time goes by, it'll become less superficial as they find they can handle more of it. This whole process of handling a traumatic incident to an endpoint, it will take anywhere from a minimum of let's say 10 minutes, which is unusual to, it may take, uh, you know, two, three hours, it depends. And part of our technique is you let the person get through it to a point of resolution, to a point, to an end point. You don't stop them in the middle of it. And that's also a safety factor. They know they're gonna get through the whole thing to the end and at the end, they'll be experiencing an end point and a release of energy and some kind of insight probably. And uh, so that makes it safe for them to do it because you're not gonna end the session in the middle of working on one of these things. But that also means that you have to be flexible in your hours, you have to be letting the person go through the whole, whole thing. Normally it would take like an hour and a half at the beginning and then as a person becomes more capable and able to confront, their session will become shorter and they'll be able to resolve stuff in a lesser amount of time.
1: Mm-hmm. And whatever mechanism turns on the intensity, there's there's a mechanism that brings you through that intensity and turns it down or gets through it.
2: And it's not actually a mechanism per se, it's, okay. it's simple awareness that brings you through it. It's simply, more and more awareness as you become aware of more and more things about the incident that gets you through it. Because these are the things that you were trying not to be aware of. Now you're letting yourself be aware. You're you're relaxing your awareness as it were.
1: So is there a correlation between the intensity and the non-awareness? So in other words, the more we don't want to be aware, the more intense it can be? Um,
2: I, I suppose that if if something happens to you that's especially painful you're going to be more motivated to, to shove it under the rug unless you're one of these people that likes to look at things in which case you might just sit down and, and experience it. The thing about TIR is it really duplicates a natural process that happens in people who are not easily traumatized and that when you when you have a traumatic incident and then later something reminds you of it, triggers it, as it were, you could say that's a bad thing because you're experiencing unpleasant emotion and maybe behaving in an unpleasant way. But in another way, you could think of it as a good thing because your mind is reminding you of something you really do need to look at. So if you're able to just... Uh, sit down on a park bench or whatever, and examine the incident on your own, it, it would end up releasing and not being traumatic anymore. Uh, people normally don't have the time or the inclination to do this. They need some help. Actually, some people do do it, though. And there's a l- fairly large percentage of people that experience traumas who do not have PTSD because they simply allow themselves to become aware of it in a short period of time, and they basically do what TIR does, but they do it on their own. But I'm, I'd say that most people cannot do this on their own and should not attempt to do it on their own. They should. So don't make, do this at home, folks. Don't do it at home, yeah. You, you want somebody there as a safety factor who can keep you on track, because if you get something triggered and then you start to look at it and it triggers something else right start to look at that trigger something else you end up going down a rabbit hole and getting a lot of things triggered at once and that can be very unpleasant so the the we use the term facilitator the person that facilitates the process of resolving one of these things and the job of the facilitator is to keep you on task and to uh give you a structure in which you can do the work, uh, which you might not be able to do or probably would not be able to do on your own.
1: So when we do it on our own, is that like spontaneous recovery? Yeah. That's yeah, okay. That's
2: the essence of a spontaneous recovery. Uh, and some people are capable of doing that, but uh, some people are not.
1: Okay. So... When you use the word causative, tell us a little bit more about that and the difference between being a victim of trauma and the process of empowerment uh, through the traumatic incident. And, yeah, tell us a little bit more about all of that.
2: Yeah, well, uh, we talk about victims of trauma, but the, the actual issue is not so much that the person is a victim, but that the person is not able or willing to confront the trauma. And it's up to the person to decide how much they want to look at. So again, a trauma is not something that's done to a person. It's an interaction between a person and an experience. And a person could change their way of reacting to or coping with a situation if they're aware that that's what's going on. And that puts them in a position of being the cause rather than being the effect. So we're not, we don't, uh, in our work, we don't really talk about victims of trauma. We talk about people who, who are experiencing something that they're having trouble confronting and we try to help them to confront it. And that's, that's our viewpoint on it.
1: Interesting. I was uh, not that long ago uh, approached to do an interview on a class called Victimology. Oh, yeah. And at first I'm like, wow, there's a class called Victimology. It had this energy to it for me that was like, okay, so this is what victims are. This is what victims do. And it didn't sit really well with me because Uh we're trying to get out of victimhood into empowerment.
2: Exactly. And and I think it's it's actually somewhat destructive to, to promote the idea that people are victims. It's saying, okay, you can't do anything about it. You, you're the effect of it. And that really isn't helpful to a person. I think that it's way more helpful to think of them as a causative agent that can actually do something. Uh, so,
1: And what do you mean by that? A causative agent that can do something. What can people do?
2: Well they can what they can do is they can find something to work on they can do the work yeah. basically find yeah, exactly. something to work on, and then go through it systematically from beginning to end and and resolve it and that's something that people are capable of doing Absolutely. they don't have to be you know lifelong victims of something that happened in their past that's the message that we're trying to put forward is that you can get over it uh and uh, it just takes some help and the determination to do the work.
1: Right. So it's actually about being proactive in one's personal growth. Yes, exactly. Okay. And victim is is actually not being able or not being willing to confront the incidents. That's what keeps us in victimhood.
2: Yes, exactly. It's okay. It's considering... Forgetting that we are, uh, can be a cause point, forgetting that we can actually cause things and thinking that we're just the effect of what's going on, which is basically a lie we're telling ourselves and we don't need to do that.
1: Right. Okay. So tell us, Dr. Garbodi, how unresolved traumatic incidents show up in behavior so that people can say, oh, if these are the things that I'm doing, oh, perhaps I could look at, uh, if I have any traumatic incidents that I can address?
2: Well, they sh- first of all, some people have traumatic incidents that they're aware of that happened in their past. They can identify, oh, I had an accident or, oh, somebody was murdered or I had a very painful illness or operation. They can identify, okay, this was traumatic. And then there's a form of TIR that we can use to address these known traumas. And we call that basic TIR,
0: uh-huh. traumatic
2: incident reduction. And, uh, but other times people simply have experiencing the effects of trauma without necessarily knowing where it's coming from. Right. And this is, and in this case, we encourage people to look for feelings, emotions, sensations, unwanted attitudes, and psychosomatic pains, or sometimes physical pains, uh, that give them a start, because these things are often caused by past incidents. So this this is called thematic TIR, and we're looking for a theme that goes through a whole sequence of, of traumas, starting with uh, a root trauma, something bad happens in the past, the person's unaware that this happened And then they're reminded of it on different occasions. And each time they're reminded, they kind of have a choice whether, okay, now I'm being reminded, I can either look at it or not look at it. If they choose not to look at it, then the incident of being reminded becomes another trauma. And so so they can get a whole sequence of these. Go ahead.
1: Okay, so when you say reminded of, that's actually the trigger showing up and it's a clue that we have something unresolved.
2: Exactly and okay. if, if we see it as a clue that there's something there rather than it's just a bad thing that's another bad thing that's happening to us then that points the way to resolving it
1: right so I see a lot of clients who present with anxiety and then the anxiety the symptom of anxiety actually becomes in their view uh, traumatic so they became they become, more concerned with the anxiety rather than looking at the root that is causing or contributing to the anxiety. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, and sometimes, too, if you get uh, a theme, we call it a theme of anxiety, let's say, that goes yep. through a, a number of different incidents, it's helpful to make it a little more specific because Anxiety is a universal part of life, and not all of it is trauma-based. But if we look at specific anxieties, like specific phobias, or specific situations, uh, like uh, anxiety and a social anxiety, or if we narrow it down a bit more, then then we'll have a better chance of tracing it back to something.
1: Okay. So anxiety is sort of like a compilation of... Um, I guess, incidents that haven't been resolved in some respect?
2: Yes, it also can be a normal emotion. I mean, if you're confronted with a, uh, you're afraid you are going to flunk a test or something like that, or you're afraid of that you're going to blow it in, in an interview like this interview, Uh that's that can be a normal source of anxiety and it's not trauma based, but when the anxiety happens and isn't tied that closely to something that could reasonably considered be considered to be a cause of anxiety, then then it's where you want to look in the past,
1: right? And look at the clues that are presenting because it's it's very valuable information. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so Dr. Garbodi, we're going to take a quick break and okay chat in a moment. All righty. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel, VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com.
0: Visit ezrena.ca for information about counseling and body healing services. Esrena is a Master's Therapeutic Counselor registered with the Association of Cooperative Counseling Therapists of Canada. She has 10 years of counseling experience. She will work both in her office as well as via Skype or will travel to your area through her workshops. You can even schedule a session online. These sessions are one hour or 90 minutes long. Visit Ezrina.ca. Again, that's ezrena.ca. Ca. Ezrina Rose Scott conducts several workshops every year, and she can bring them to you, wherever you are. Visit Ezrina.ca or call 250-212-5596 for more information. Ezrina is an Access Consciousness Practitioner. Her popular workshops include Access Consciousness, The Bars, as well as workshops on money, money, Body and relationships. rena's workshops can help you get unstuck and move forward in your life. Find out more or bring a friend along. Visit Ezrena.ca for more information or call 250 212 5596. Become a member of VoiceAmerica.com. It's easy and best of all, it's free. Start out by going to our homepage or any of our channels and click register at the top. listening to Trauma Talk with Ezrina Rose Scott. To reach our program today, you may call in to 1-888-346-9141 That's 1-888-346-9141 If you'd rather send an email, you can send it to Ezrina at Ezrina.ca Now, let's return to Trauma Talk.
1: So, just to recap here, Dr. Garbodi, um when we're identifying uh, the, the results of traumatic incidents, like emotionally, it shows up as what? Fear, anxiety, guilt, anger. What other emotions do you see often?
2: Well, it's, it's, we use the term uh, FESAPs, which is short for feelings, emotions, sensations, attitudes, and pains. These are the classic symptoms of something that's been repressed and is traumatic. So we are usually aware of those things, but we aren't necessarily aware of what is triggering them. Like uh, a person maybe uh, went to a funeral and was very traumatized at the death of somebody and later on maybe finding themselves depressed when they hear church bells or something like that. And fortunately, although people may not spot the triggers, well, let me go back up for a second. If a person is concerned with coping with the trauma rather than resolving it, then they have to be very concerned with the triggers because they have to stay away from situations that tend to trigger those person that was triggered by church bells would not go to church, a person that was had social anxiety based on past trauma would not go to parties, and basically they would restrict their lives in such a way that these triggers don't happen, except that that's kind of a losing proposition, because there's always other triggers that will come along. Uh, but on the other hand, if rather than just coping and and having the idea that this trauma is going to be with you forever... If you have the idea of, okay, I can actually decouple my reaction to these stimuli, these triggers, and not have to be triggered by them. So uh, if I resolve this trauma of a past death, let's say that I won't be triggered by uh, church bells anymore. And that can be a very uh, that's that's one of the things I really like about TIR because it actually achieves a resolution rather than it simply being coping with something and with the idea it's going to be with you the rest of your life.
1: Right. So then, how? Tell us a little bit about how unresolved traumatic incidents show up in behavior. You had mentioned compulsions, obsessions, destructive behavior. What else comes to mind? Well,
2: let's let's take a look at at. Drug addiction, okay, as a behavior. Okay. Why do people become addicted to drugs? Well, part of the reason is there's something in their life that they're running away from, that that real life has become traumatic or difficult to confront, and they take the drug to have a little vacation from real life.
1: Which is the avoidance thing again, the Yeah,
2: and the result of that, of course, is that whatever... Needed to be handled in real life doesn't get handled, so that st- stuff that doesn't get handled gets worse in right. general in life, and so then they feel even more inclined to to go with the drug i'm not I'm talking about the emotional part of addiction; there's also a physical part, but this is the emotional part and uh so in order to resolve that, you have to get back to the situation before the person started taking drugs and find out what they're trying to avoid and deal with that trauma. And then they won't feel the same degree, at least the emotional part of the compulsion of taking drugs. So we have a a drug program that involves doing this and handling the past traumas connected with drugs or before taking drugs. that works pretty well.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: But a person actually has to come off the drug they have to be detoxified first because if you're under the influence of a drug, a you shouldn't drive, and b you shouldn't try to look at your traumas because you're not, you don't got you're all not your coping marbles. already. Yeah, you don't have all your marbles there to deal with. it. Right. Yeah.
1: Okay. Now some would say, well, they need that facilitation in order to get off drugs. Well,
2: that's kind of a catch twenty two, but there are lighter things you can do while a person is on drugs to get them ready to, to come off to confront coming off the drugs and uh there are some people are not able to go into traumas right off the bat even though they may be affected by them right <clears throat> so we have other techniques um that are lighter that can help a person get to where they can confront uh looking at those traumas. One of those things is having a person look at pleasantness from the past. It, it, it gets them desensitized to the idea of actually looking at the past. If mm-hmm. what they're looking at is pleasant, then they are willing to, to look at it. And then it helps develop their ability to contact the past. And once they have that ability, they're better equipped to contact past traumas.
1: Right, that's a really good point. Okay. And then how, how does unresolved traumatic incidents affect one's thinking? Well, uh,
2: it's all about thinking, really, because the act of repressing is something that happens in the mind. So if you have a past trauma and you're trying not to be aware of it, then you have to be very careful not to think about it. And therefore, your thinking has to go in a different direction. And people have different mechanisms for repressing. Uh, one is uh, allowing themselves to be distracted and getting off into other things that distract their attention. I'm afraid the, the internet and social media may be something of that nature, which enables them to not have to think about aspects of real life, and they can just get into their cell phone or whatever. Or, or video games, and that I think in itself is not a bad thing. But if it's done with the view to not resolving past real life stuff, then it can be a problem.
1: Hmm. And what sort of thinking have you seen when someone isn't, when someone has been traumatized? What happens uh, to their thinking patterns? Like, well, at sort of thinking?
2: The, at the point of having a trauma. A person often makes a decision of some kind. They Uh, generate a thought of some kind that is, they conceive of as protecting them in some way. Uh, For instance, a person that's raped may decide I'm never going to trust a man again. And they can go through their life having this thought, I'm never going to trust a man. It can totally interfere with their ability to form relationships. Uh, That's just one example, but a classic idea that comes up is the idea that I I must make sure this never happens again. And the things, the lengths that people go to, to make sure something doesn't happen again can be very destructive to their lives.
1: TIR is a method that allows one to resolve an incident that can actually get to the decision that someone made. And once they get the awareness of the decision they made during the traumatic incident is when they can undo it or release that decision or negative thought pattern, correct? Exactly. Yeah.
2: In general, in order to, if you have some sort of fixed idea from the past, you can't really let go of an idea until you know why you had that idea in the first place. So uh, in doing TIR, a person gets back to the content of the incidents in which they came up with this idea and then it makes sense to them why they had this idea and they could say, oh, well, that made sense at the time but it doesn't really make sense now. And that's a pretty classic insight a person has from doing TIR.
1: Right. Yeah, and that's, that's the freedom right then and there to, to create something different or uh, to move beyond the, the decision that they made in that moment that served them well, but no longer serves them in later on, right? Right. Yeah.
2: And there's sort of an analogy here to uh, where you have f- fixed ideas because of what you were told during childhood that this is, you're told that such and such is the case, and you accept it with that question. And one of our techniques, not TIR, but related, involves if a person has an idea that seems to be false, they have some kind of false information from the past, mm-hmm. they can resolve that by going back to where they acquired that information and making, taking a look to see whether it really still makes sense.
1: Right. And is that what we call what you call wrong indications?
2: Oh, well that's a, that's a whole other thing. A wrong indication is where somebody says something to you uh, and that's wrong but somehow you can't completely disbelieve it. Right. You wonder if it's true or not and so you this can cause a great deal of distress. Uh, uh because you get introverted and you don't know if it's true or not and you think right. it might be true. If, you were, if someone says something bad to you and you know for a fact it's not true, then you'll just be curious as to why they said it. You won't be affected by it. It's only when you go into agreement with it partially that, uh, that it can have an effect on you. So you can have a person look at these wrong indications and discover what the correct... The truth is, and they can undo that little bit of doubt that they have about about whether they really whether it's are truly true or not, and that can be enormously releasing
0: mm-hmm.
2: but it's not t i r exactly but a similar thing to it uh, getting becoming aware of something that you weren't aware of that's the, the key.
1: Right. Well, there's a lot of very effective and efficient and brilliant techniques in applied metapsychology. So thank you for that contribution to the world, Dr. Garbodi.
2: My pleasure. Um,
1: We've got a couple minutes left before the end of the episode. Do you want to talk about uh, education versus therapy?
2: Yeah, I don't regard TIR and related techniques as a form of psychotherapy. And it's kind of a scruple on my part because therapy comes out of the medical model where one person does something to another person to alleviate that person's pain or discomfort or disease. And this is really the wrong model for what we're doing. What we're doing is helping the person become more aware. They're becoming educated about themselves. And so I regard it. As a form of education, rather than form of therapy, and specifically, it's a form of education where they take stuff they already have and understand it better, rather than uh, rather than uh, being given new information. So, the facilitator in a session will not give any new information to the the client, other than whatever they need to know to actually do the the work and that's very important you don't tell stuff to your client they discover stuff for themselves
1: and and that's the education process it really is about it, becoming self-aware
2: it is and yeah. it in that sense it's like meditation techniques and other uh awareness-based techniques
1: so really uh the tools of applied metapsychology are about becoming self-aware
2: Exa- exactly
1: that's awesome. What a great place to end. Thank you, Dr. Grabody, so much for being on Trauma Talk. Have a great day, everyone.
0: My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Trauma Talk with Ezrina Rose Scott. Be sure to tune in to the program again next Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until we speak again... Make this week your best.